0: God spread a cloud for a covering, and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought quail, and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations, and they took possession of the fruits of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Those are verses 40, or 39, sorry, to 45 of Psalm 105, verses 23 to 45 of which are the psalm appointed for today, Thursday, August the 11th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing in the book of Judges with Samson's story, chapter 14 today, the first 19 verses there. In John's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 27 to 42, which is more of the story of the uh, Samaritan woman at the well. And then also in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 6, verse 15 through chapter 7, verse 16. So in the In this now, so remember, so Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth, which he meant he wasn't to eat anything unclean, and nor drink anything of the the fruit of the vine. So, and it was never to have his hair cut either. That was the other thing. So. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now who are these Philistines? Because it's important to know who they are for multiple reasons, not the least of which is Samson's birth was to be the beginning of the conquest of the Philistines. So the Philistines are also the people that like Goliath was a Philistine, for instance. So, but the Philistines typically were people who lived down on the southern coast of the land of Canaan, which would be the land that the Israelites were to have conquered, including the area known as Gaza, what we know as the Gaza Strip today. So it's along the coast in the southern part of the land. So he came up and went and told, he came up, came back, in other words, <clears throat> and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. Well, this is going to go against all the Nazarite vows. I mean, there's no way you can keep uh, ritually pure by marrying a Philistine woman. It's odd that this would have been the case. He's been supposedly a Nazarite from birth, and now here he is, that he decides that he wants to marry a Philistine woman. But his father and mother said to him, Isn't there a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all our people, that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. Now here's the really interesting part. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. And at that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, we've already heard that they ruled over him for 40 years. It seems really odd that God would have had him take a Nazarite vow to to be ritually pure his whole life. And it seems that John the Baptist actually followed some of those same things. But he takes this Nazarite vow, and yet now he's called to marry uh, a daughter of another people group which was against God's law. It's odd that this would have been the case. But it is, because God had a plan. And his plan was to infiltrate and destroy them sort of from within, as it were. So Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father and mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with a woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. Now, again, this is an unclean thing. Taking anything for food out of a dead thing is not okay. It's against any kind of ritual purity laws in Israel to take this food out of this dead thing. If you read a lot of commentary on this, and I don't mean just sort of academic commentary, uh, I'm thinking more along the lines of allegorical commentary, you'll see all this uh, stuff that allegorizes the fact that this sweet thing comes out of the lion, the lion's defeated, by one man and then this sweet comes out of it. It, it it gets allegorized beyond belief but you know it is what it is so I'm not going to poo-poo it it's just not my way of looking at things anyway so he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate so they're impure as well now for having received this food but he didn't tell them that they had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion because they wouldn't have eaten it otherwise but it, it has a different reason in the story his father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for as the, for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. So if you get it, then I'll give you. If, I, if you don't get it, then you've got to give me. So he's given them each a set of clothes, they're each going to give him a set of clothes. So they get one each, he gets 30 at the end of the day. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. Now he, had, he gave him seven days for the days of the feast prior to the wedding. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife. Now a wife we don't know if this marriage had been, quote, solemnized, in other words, had it been regularized, or or are they just um, still betrothed to one another, under Jewish law, that many of the rules governing betrothal uh, were also the laws of marriage. So on, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what his riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father or mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that the feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day, before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So he solved the riddle, or they solved the riddle, because... Well, she told him, and he knew that. He said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon, which is another Philistine city, and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. And in hot anger, he went back to his father's house. So his wife has betrayed him. She gave her people the answer to this riddle because they threatened her with burning down her and her father's house. And now... (coughs) Samson is angry. So he goes and kills 30 men of the Philistines down in Ashkelon and then brings the spoil back and gives it to the the 30 people whom he had tried to trick with that riddle. <clears throat> Samson is a, a complex character, let's say. He's simple in in many ways because he acts completely on impulse in everything that he does, but at the same time he's a very complex guy because he he doesn't seem to Think beyond what impulse would do, and he's he's somebody that it's harder for me to relate to almost than anybody in Scripture, and the um, the stories about Samson have consistently been the hardest things for me to just say. Okay, well they're in the Word, so I'm going to believe them. <laughs> so here Jesus is at the well in the gospel lesson today. the the He's been speaking with the woman. And remember the disciples had gone to get food, so just then his disciples came back. And they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. So the, the whole reason she came here was to get water. But what she got was so much more and so much more important than the water. She just left the water there and goes into the town and said to the people, what every other disciple has said so far, come and see. Come and see a man who told me every, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has someone brought him something to eat? I mean, they were literalists with almost everything Jesus said at certain times. Like when he warns them against the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees, they're worried about not having any bread in the boat. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest." we don't know, we we have a rough idea when this happens, but, but he's not speaking of the fields here, because what have we seen before? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So you can see and imagine all these people coming out with these robes on, these white robes, they're coming out. So he's encouraging them, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper might gather together hear the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, which would validate him as a prophet, the prophet that Moses had spoken of, because he gave her knowledge and information that he couldn't have gotten outside of of God. I I guess he could have supposed theoretically gotten it from gossip, but she knew that he had gotten this from some other place. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. It's odd, certainly, that the Samaritans would have asked him and the disciples to stay with them and for Jesus to have remained there two days. The disciples wouldn't have wanted to go there. They wouldn't have wanted to be there. And yet, here they are, and now they're going to stay two days, and they're going, to, they're going to reap a harvest while they're there, just as Jesus had said they would. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's a mighty big statement right there. He's not just the Savior of, of the Jews. He's not just the Savior of the Jews and the Samaritans. He's the Savior of the world. So what they've seen is a big picture of Jesus that is bigger than anybody has really thought of before, because other people are thinking of this Jewish Messiah person. The Jews are thinking of a Jewish Messiah person who's going to come, and he's going to restore the kingdom. And no, that's not the issue here. They said, this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they've come to believe something about Jesus that's bigger than, but more accurate than what even the disciples believe at this point in time. It's a pretty amazing thing that their, their faith, their belief in who Jesus was, was greater than anybody else who had yet met him. So these Samaritans are, are the descendants of the ones to whom Philip goes. We're going to meet, We're going to see that in a couple of days in the Acts lesson. But today we're still looking at Stephen. Remember, Stephen was brought before the council and he was charged with speaking against the temple saying that, oh yeah, he follows that Jesus guy, the one who said that he could tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, and he won't stop talking about this resurrection thing. And and yeah, he's speaking against the temple. Yeah, that's it, that's it. So when they do, it's time for him to make his defense. And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel, which should have said, we need to be careful here. We need to be very careful about what's going on. I guess maybe Gamaliel wasn't there, that day, because remember in the lesson a couple of days ago, he counseled them against any rash action against this new sect, uh, lest it turn out bad if it's true. So after the charges are brought, the high priest said, are these things true? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. So he doesn't say straight up, no, these things are not true, or yes, these things are true. He's going to give the history of Israel to these people, and they had to be yawning and rolling their eyes like you're going to tell us our own history. We are the leaders of the people. So he says, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. Well, that wasn't complete obedience there, (laughs) He was supposed to go to the land God would show him, but instead they stopped in Haran and stayed there. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. So he had to wait for, he was supposed to leave everything and go to Haran, go to the land God would show him, and instead he didn't leave anything. He just, well, he left one place. He left the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And then only after his father died, Did God remove him from there? And he says, go and leave everything behind. Well, he doesn't do that quite either. He takes lot along with him. Yet he gave him no inheritance in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Again, you can see these guys who are on the council. These are the leaders of Israel. They're the chief priests, the the rabbis, the, the guys who knew the word of God. They didn't need Stephen to give them this history lesson. They knew it quite well. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. And you see the groundwork there. I mean, it's true. What he said is true. But the words that he used, the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. You can hear that. The patriarchs are the other tribes. And so these other tribes sell Joseph into slavery, into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. Now, here's the other thing about this is, was it God's will that that happened, that Joseph be sold down into slavery in Egypt, suffer as as he did, and then be raised up to be the leader, the economic leader of the entire nation, and a way of saving his brothers? And the answer is yes. In the same way that Samson was intended to marry a Philistine woman, even though it didn't make any sense. And here it's the same thing. So it doesn't make any sense, and it seems completely unjust, and in fact it is unjust, but even that injustice was being used by God to accomplish what he had purposed for the people of Israel. God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. So when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers, his sons, on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So you remember, I assume, that he bought, Abraham bought the cave of Machpelah. And the cave of Machpelah is where he was living at the time, which is also apparently known as Shechem. And he bought this cave in order to bury Sarah there. And he himself is buried there. Jewish lore will tell you that it, as it happens, <laughs> it's also the place where Adam and Eve are buried. But what what the point is in all this is, is that God gave him, not he didn't give him a foot's length of soil, but he did give him a foothold by giving him the cave of Machpelah, which is in Shechem, which is again, Samaria. Sh- Sychar, Shechem, uh, those two things are considered to be the same thing. And it's the place where Jacob's well was. So it's the place where the action in the gospel takes place. So they Stephen's story is incorporating that place into the land which is where it belongs. But at the same time, they no longer think of it that way. They think of that as being Samaria. They think of it as being different from Israel in the same way they would look at the tribes that were in the north that that formed the northern kingdom after the death of solomon they would look at them as different tribes now they were because the assyrians relocated all the people who were in the northern kingdom and that's the tribe that we say are the the tribes that we say are the lost tribes the 10 tribes that formed the northern kingdom that was destroyed 100 plus years prior to the destruction of jerusalem In the exile to Babylon, so that's the setting for all these things. So we've got we're in the same basic region in every single one of these things. But we can see God's providence and His sovereignty in all things. You can see it in the Samson story because he marries a woman that he wasn't intended to marry. I mean, that he was intended by God to marry, but didn't fit with his Nazarite vow or God's law. But it was God's will. In that particular case, for this to happen, we see Jesus in a place where Jews wouldn't go, but God had a place because he wanted to incorporate the Samaritans, and that's the reason that, that Jesus says that the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem, the city, to Judea, the so you could think of it as a county with Jerusalem as the, the main city, Samaria, which is where he is today, and to the ends of the earth. And so you see that being incorporated, those Samaritans being brought back into the family prior to the expansion of the kingdom to foreign lands. So you see that, and then you see God's providence in this passage here, where Stephen is explaining God's providence, that that this happened and this happened and this happened it didn't make any sense there was no children he didn't have any land but and then there was jealousy that caused them to sell him sell Joseph into slavery and and but 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 and then you can just see God's providential hand in all the things of this story again and again and again the things that look bad that look wrong that look like they don't fit the narrative actually form the narrative because it's not our narrative it's God's narrative he can do things any way he chooses to do them, and and all we have to do is pay attention and not make preliminary snap judgments on whether something's good or bad. We just have to allow God's will to be done. We have to be able to say, I'm going to step back. This doesn't feel good necessarily, but I'm going to let it happen, and and I'm going to stand here and I'm going to watch what God's going to do with what I think is a messy situation in my life, and that's the way we need to handle things. If we don't make the mess, that is.